My name is Sam Powdrell, and uh, I teach at the University of Kentucky, and I've been there for a number of years, but I still go out to Kenya every year. I am a physician assistant that started out as a nurse and uh, was uh, taught to do eye surgery while I was in Kenya by ophthalmologists, and the Kenyan government said, why don't you go back to school and get something we can credential you with? So I went back, became a PA, went back and did their cataract surgery training course. So that's kind of my background in a nutshell um, in several years. Um, and so I still go back. And uh, um, the, where we worked was at Tenwick Hospital. And I'm going to just well, I'll go to that in a second, um, which is in uh, western Kenya. And I'll come back to that. I just want to look over several things here, um, talk a little bit about avoidable blindness, because that's really uh, worldwide, that's the real issue, is avoidable blindness, um, and I'll explain a little bit what that means. Um, what works in the community, how to approach them, so I don't know if any of you will be possibly setting up eye care, or some of the stuff works for other things too, dental and one thing and another, but um, I'm going to try and share a little bit of that. Uh, some of the technology that we're using and, and cost, um, and then look at static versus mobile clinics. And I've done both, and uh, uh, some things that may help you one way or another with that. And then some priorities in, in eye care. And so what I'd look, look at, and then how, that, how we can integrate the spiritual as well. Um, whoops, I think I'm going to figure out a different way to do this. Hang on. Oh, I lost track of my slides here, sorry. Okay, um, this was one of our little eye clinics we ended up at, so very much community-based. <laughs> uh, this was uh, the school and the church, and uh, for that week it was the eye clinic, so um, way out in the middle of nowhere. Everywhere we went in Kenya, and this is in many places in the world, you find lines of people needing eye care, and uh, it's sort of that way. This is down to the very basics. Now, everything I did in Kenya wasn't like this. Um, I had a nice surgery suite at Tenwick Hospital that we operated in all the time, and that's where I worked. But uh, um, I did a lot of stuff. Uh, just packed up the car, trailer, and we set up in wherever. Um, and uh, so that's sort of it. And you'll see this is a little bit ominous, having a lamp there, the electricity. We didn't have much electricity. So we carried everything. I carried light sources and, and everything. Sometimes it came down to the bare bones. Tenwick is, uh, that's where it's located in southwestern Kenya. Um, some of what I'll be talking about today as well was a, a clinic we went up to, wait, I get my further enough over, up to Wamba, uh, which is up in northern part of Kenya. And really the area I worked was this area through here, all the way up here, and then across in this area. So pretty much from there all the way down the Tanzania border and over into this corner. There was really no eye care in that whole area of Kenya. Um, so I said my immediate catchment area was about a million people. It probably was actually more than that. Um, but that's, that's the area that we went with. In Nairobi, there's a lot of ophthalmologists, <laughs> and um, that's what's happening. And so you see what I just showed you skirted that whole area. How big is the problem of avoidable blindness? Well, there's about 39 million um, blind in the world, and that means they can't see um, 
you know the big letter on the eye chart that you look at? We normally look at it at 20 feet. Well, they can't see it at 10 feet. So that's pretty blind. So that's how many people that can't see that at 10 feet. Um, and that's with the best corrected vision, with glasses, with whatever. Um, there's about 285 men with low vision. So you can see there's a huge um, chunk more that aren't blind, but they're not good. And uh, that's kind of what's happening. 90% uh, live in the developing world. 65% um, of the visually impaired um, and 82% of the blind are over 50. So there, it's an elderly population, which you would expect when you hear about cataract, right? So and that, that is, but it's, it's a heavy load in the developing world because there's no social security in most of those countries. So it's a heavy, heavy load. 80% um, of the visual impairment um, can be avoided or cured, and we'll talk about that in just a second. So here's, here's the picture of your little old lady that's got cataracts. And what's she doing? How active is this lady? She isn't, because she can't see her hand in front of her face, okay? And so she's sitting and she sits at home. So just for a minute, think with me. What's a patient like that going to, what's going to happen to that patient? What sort of attitude are they going to be in? Very depressed, right. And they get very, very depressed. And sometimes they'll stop eating. Uh, sometimes the family just sort of gives up on them because they say they're not productive. So do we spend the money trying to fix them when we need to put a young person through school? Um, and so it becomes an uh, issue of priorities. And so, um, so they often don't get the care they need. 50% um, of the blindness approximately is cataract. And uh, that's um, and cataract is something you can do something about. Glaucoma is uh, about eight percent, and I'll talk a little bit about glaucoma. Glaucoma is a devastating disease, and normally we see it anywhere from well, it's changed a little bit, but um, it was about twenty percent of the population, and it has been that for me in Kenya, about twenty percent, not the population of the blind, um, but. Some other things are starting to creep in on that. Diabetes for one of them. Um, and you'll see here macular degeneration is on the rise. That, a few years ago, that wasn't one we even considered in the developing world. And it is today because they're living longer. Okay? And then corneal has to do with trachoma, which is on the downside. It's, it's going down. Here's one of the big things that uh, we're realizing worldwide is uncorrected refraction. What uncorrected refraction means? They just need a pair of glasses. Okay, that's all they need is a pair of glasses. Um, but last time you bought a pair of glasses, how much did you pay for it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's for some for many places in the world. That's a total annual income. So, how many pairs of glasses are they going to buy? It's not going to happen. We think we're hard up having to pay 300 for a pair of glasses. Imagine spending your entire year's income on a pair of glasses. Well, that's what a lot of people are facing, and that's kind of where it's at. Um, this is really a huge untold story is the, is the children. Uh, there's 19 million children that are visually impaired, um, uh, and, um, and 1.4 blind irreversibly. But a lot of this visual impairment is glasses. Again, so you can see these are these are huge numbers. We're talking, uh, you know, in the hundreds of millions 
of people that uh, could need a pair of glasses. Um, and then the kids, what's going to happen to school if they don't have a good pair of glasses? They get behind because they can't see the board. And I can guarantee that's the kid that's going to sit in the back of the class because he feels bad because he can't answer the questions, right? So he's short-sighted, needs to be on the front row, and he's sitting on the back row. So he's absolutely made the problem worse. And so that's a big issue. And so then he gets behind in school, he doesn't get through school, doesn't get a good job, and the cycle just goes, goes around simply over a pair of glasses. That's pretty tragic in our world today. Yeah. When we just spent $6 billion on an election... We could have given all these kids glasses. <laughs> I find that tragic. <laughs> but anyway, I won't get into politics. That's enough. <laughs> all right. What about eye care? Um, a couple of statistics that are interesting. So you say, why are there all these cataracts? When, do you care if I wander? I haven't got the mic on anyway. Um, why are all these cataracts? You've got uh, um, 50% of the blind are cataracts. It's a 15-minute operation. We can do something about it. So why do we have all these blind people? Well, here's part of the answer. And why don't we see the... Have you seen anyone blind from cataract in the States? Have any of you ever seen anyone blind from cataract? No, it's dark. I can't quite see the road signs very good to drive. And so they go get their cataract out. So here in the States, we do about 5,800 for every million people in in the population. Um, And so... But look at the problem over there. How many are we doing in Africa? We're doing 300 for every 1 million people. The number of people that get cataracts is about the same. They're not really getting any more there than they are here. But nobody's operating on them. And that's the real problem. And so um, the whole emphasis of, of this talk is, so how do we do something about getting these cataracts done and getting eye care to, this, to, to the people that need it? Um, and that's where we're go- looking at. Okay. Um, roughly 100 are blind. Uh, sorry, 1 in 100 are blind. 1 in 100 is visually handicapped, uh, so low vision, and another, or severely low vision, and another 1% is, has some level of low vision. So there's actually 3% of the population that have visual problems that need something done about it. And a lot of it's either glasses or cataract surgery. So that's why... So um, that's where we're at. Um, what's the challenge? Immediate catchment area, let's take a million people. That's about what I had to deal with. Uh, 1% are blind, 1% visually handicapped, half of them are cataracts. We just said all that. Um, and so if you do the numbers, um, oh, and then out of that, about 20% of those that are blind in, in, in that area are going to have to, um, that's about how many new ones we get a year. So on top of the 1% that's blind, we're getting, for that many people, we're getting another 2,000 cases. I was operating about 1,000 cases in Kenya a year. So I wasn't even touching the new cases. Okay. Um, So that's... Okay. I think missions has the answer for it. We have excellent hospitals. We have good training programs. We have great community rapport. I mean, a hospital like Tenwick's been there 50 years. And, uh, um, you know... We've got spiritual care to share. Uh, we have a reason to be doing what we're doing. And we many times have very dedicated staff. Um, here's some things, and this is probably some of the core stuff of what I want to talk about. And it's a little bit dry, some more numbers. I'm going to get to some good stuff here in just a second. But 
focus. A lot of people go in, they want to fix the retinal detachments and the macular degenerations and all this stuff. That is stuff that's hugely expensive to do something about. So when I went to Tenwick, I said, let me take care of the 95% that I can take care of with some basic things and let those fancy ophthalmologists take care of that other 5%. Um, And I think it is a matter of setting our priorities in these countries. Yes, there are some people I couldn't do anything about. Um, or it was uh, difficult to, um, and I did try, but I tried to focus on that 95% that we could do something about. Okay. Um, I think some of the keys, we get hung up on taking a lot of big equipment. A lot of this can be done with simple things. 95% of the eye diagnoses can, uh, um, affect the front of the eye. They can be uh, found out easily with an ophthalmoscope and a flashlight um, by, by a nurse. So why not, let's take care of that. Don't take all all these fancy uh, um, equipment to test with and so on. There is a place for that stuff. But when you have people blind from cataracts, let's let's deal with the basics. And that's that's kind of my message today. Um, Target the medically underserved. And one of the problems in mission hospitals today is that as they become more and more uh, staffed by indigenous people, uh, you know, the local people, those people's salaries have to be covered from patient um, care and from patient, um, you know, when missionaries go, they raise their own support. So they're now having to pay for their salaries um, out of what they get from patients. So what it does, it raises the cost of care. It now takes it away from the medically underserved and puts it back treating the middle class. And that's something that's a problem for many mission hospitals and, and it's a difficult one to deal with. Uh, Teamwork is absolutely essential. We've got to work together. Um, Use local staff whenever possible because I believe they stay there, and for the most part they do. Um, I've got my staff. Several of them have been there 20 years at Tenwick, and they're still working hard, and and one of them just retired. Um, Cross-train your staff. That's a great thing to do. If they just know one job, uh, then if they're out sick or on vacation, you're kind of stuck. So I always try and cross-train and have them do several jobs. And then... Take time to encourage your, your staff. Um, you know, they're, they're people too. We worry about, you know, how I'm staying encouraged and not getting burned out. But our staff get burned out too, and, and our local staff, our Kenyan staff, many of them are going home and farming at night after after they've worked all day in the eye clinic. Um, and uh, so, and also focus on the joy of them seeing, getting to see people see again. Sometimes we do our job, and, oh, there's another one. Yeah, he's seeing, he's doing all right, or next. <laughs> and uh, we forget to focus on that joy, and it is huge. Sometimes the most important people on the team are the translator and the pastor. And one of the things, when I was doing a lot of mobile work, we worked in about five different language areas. And so don't forget that if you're setting up teamwork, uh, number one, make it a priority to have a pastor involved and work with the people as they wait. They're there. They're sitting, waiting for something. <laughs> okay, Have a pastor involved. Um, show the Jesus film. Uh, they'll probably miss their appointment because they're so enthralled in the, in the, in the Jesus film and they, they don't hear their name called. But, but that's a great thing, to have some simple video there um, that is meaningful um, or somebody talking to them or a time where they sing. And then translator. There's nothing worse than have a patient uh, on the table you're trying to work in a three-millimeter space underneath the cornea doing this cataract, 
and they don't understand what you're saying, they start moving their head around. Uh, that's a bad situation. So translation is absolutely essential. And the translators would get bored. They'd stand near the end of the table, and after a while they'd get bored and leave. And I said, no, no, don't leave. Uh, about the time you leave, they're going to start moving because <laughs> they know you're there. <laughs> they, um, so translation is huge. And a lot of times the people, if you're in an area, translation, uh, get local school kids, the high school kids. They'll often uh, speak English, and then they can speak the local language. A lot of them are trilingual, and uh, they can be a huge help. So simple again, just cover the eye. Uh, I I just showed this just because it's a simple method of covering the eye. You know, they have the little occluders. I have a thing with occluders. Working in a situation like this, so I occlude this person's eye, now I occlude the next person's eye, now I occlude somebody else's eye. What have I just done? I passed all kinds. I don't think I'm going to take the time to alcohol swab that occluder between every patient. I don't think they do here, let alone there. Okay. So I like the person to use their own hand and take their bugs with them, and that works well. All right. Um, again, uh, working in the local area, um, the, uh, this is on church bench, simple tonometry system. That tonometer costs 50 bucks. Uh, the ones that we use in our clinic here are 2,500. Uh, so, you know, this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Go to the communities that invite you. Yeah. It's a Shiots. And it's the Shiots tonometer. Is what all, uh, there's probably one in just about every doctor's office. Um, it's in a drawer somewhere, it's covered in dust, and it hasn't been used for 20 years, okay? They're in just about every doctor's office, um, and, but people here don't know how to use them. And it is fairly simple. They worry about corneal abrasions. I think I've seen one corneal abrasion in all the thousands of cases I've done from my staff using a Shiots tonometer. Um, it can be done safely, and it's just a matter of just good training. Um, the... Um, Go to the communities that invite you. Now, you can initiate an invite. You can say, we're doing a lot of good uh, surgery up here. Would you like us to come to your community? And then say, if you do, you need to get your leaders to look us up and, and ask us to come. There's no point going somewhere where people don't really want you. Um, and sometimes we do end up in those situations, especially in mission situations. We do go to a lot of areas. But this is something that people do want, and I think is they, as they see other communities getting it, they're going to ask for care, and it gives us an inroad um, into, the, um, into the community for the gospel. And, uh, to, and I've seen that happen many, many times. It's just a thrill to see communities change. Um, work with the village committee. Um, work with community health helpers. Um, these are different levels. There are many of them volunteers. Are they all volunteers at the local level that you train in basic health care? So they're, lear they're learning all about diarrheal disease and immunizations and well baby clinics. Piggybacks my care in there with that, and that's what we did. And we had about 500 people that had some basic eye care in the Tenwick area um, over probably a catchment area of about 500,000. Immunizations is a big thing, so big things to talk about in training. Immunizations, hygiene, teach them how to do a visual acuity. You can send a chart out to all these little villages, um, and then they can screen for their cataracts by doing that. Um, I've written there, minimize the emphasis on glaucoma, and the reason is um, 
it's not that glaucoma is something you shouldn't do something about. We absolutely should. But um, with glaucoma, in the developing world, instead of treating with, medic- with drops, which are expensive, and then they quit taking them after a while, and their vision goes down, we go straight to surgery. Um, so what happens, a glaucoma surgery, they come in, most, many of them are already legally blind by the time they come in for surgery, by the time it's diagnosed, because it starts in the periphery and it goes to the center. So they come in like that, and then you give them a surgery, and you'd say, now, um, you may see worse tomorrow morning after the surgery. Okay? Um, your vision may be a little bit, bit worse, but what we're doing is keeping it from getting uh, really bad and going blind. How many of you would go for surgery with that kind of risk? You're not going to see anything more. Not many, right? And that's and for people that can't really follow that reasoning because they haven't been exposed to it. I mean, if you go to the doctor, you get better, right? And so um, that that's why we don't push glaucoma. We we absolutely do it when we run across it. But you'll sp- you can spend hours trying to get people to, from a village home trying to go with you to go get surgery. And when you get done, they say, "Well, I'm not seeing any better." Yeah, but I told you that. But I thought if I had surgery, I'd see better. And you go round and round and round. And glaucoma, quite honestly, can totally kill an eye project. Um, when we, and what they do is they go back to their village. They tell somebody with cataracts, um, when you go to the hospital, you're not going to see any better. There's no point going. Why don't you just stay here? And so here's somebody that can see perfectly the next day with cataracts that somebody with glaucoma told them, don't go to the clinic. You see why I don't? I minimize glaucoma care. Um, it's not that I'm not concerned about it. it. It can absolutely kill what you can do for, for really avoidable blindness and treatable. Okay, screen and train in the community. And Wow, I'm losing my time here. Um, screen in the community. This is teaching kids to do basic face washing in a trachoma area. So I, I got the local um, teacher, and I said, look, these kids have trachoma. I went in the school, flipped all the lids, looked and see 50% of them had trachoma. And so I said to the teacher, I can't be here tomorrow to wash their faces. You need to help them do it. Right? It's in a place where water's at a premium. So we get a little can, we put a small hole in it with a stick, and we see how many kids can wash their face out of that one can. So talk about water conservation. Talk about you can do this without getting a lot of water. And so that's what we do. Okay, and then train local people. And this this is my man that just retired. Um, I started with him uh, nearly 25 years ago, um, and he's just he's seen thousands and thousands and thousands of patients. Um, advertised well, advertising is a is a big deal. Um, I <laughs> it was amazing. We got a new bus, and on the side I put a big sign saying Tenwick Eye Unit. And underneath it, we treat Jesus heals. Great advertising. I never thought about the advertising factor. I was just doing it to make our bus look nice. And I've traveled all over Kenya with that bus. And I can't tell you how many stop signs I've come up to. And somebody comes up to me, Dr. Daddy. <laughs> They're wanting me to see them. And I hang out the bus window and, and look and see what's the matter with their eye. But thousands of people across the country have seen that sign and know that Tenwick Hospital is treating eye, pe- uh, eye care. And so advertising is a big deal. I found that three weeks is a nice time ahead. If it's more than that, they forget about it. If it's less than that, um, if you have a little charge to, to cover your staff and so on, they'll say, we can't get our money, or we can't get our money for surgery or whatever. 
And so three weeks is a nice length of time. Uh, involve the health helpers, the local community. Don't just go into a place without involving the local community. That's really important. When I advertise, uh, I usually send somebody out. We, we talk to the chief of the village uh, or several places in the area. And then school children, just send a note home with the school kids. Tell the teacher, tell the kids. And you've just gone and sent stuff to 300 homes. <laughs> okay, Great way. And they t- say, oh, Grandma. Uh, there's a doctor coming and he can fix your eyes. Great advertising. So school kids is a good one. Public transport, put some flyers on the local public transport. And pastors, don't forget your pastors. They're a huge resource. They can learn to do visual acuities and screen and help people come uh, for for surgery and, and come to the... You know, so absolutely involve them. Um, I mentioned about glaucoma and keep the cost low as possible. Um, I like to have some sort of charge, but many times I'll go into the community and negotiate the charge based on what they got, and we'll talk about that in just a little minute. In fact, here it is, so reimbursement. We call it the GOAT index. In Kenya, what we did, we found out, you ask the price of a GOAT in that community, and that's a pretty good reference for how much you ought to be charging for cataract surgery. So out in the bush, a goat was about two, three hundred shillings. In Nairobi, it was three thousand, and and actually it was a great index. It was about right, <laughs> and so we kind of just by that we try and try and make some sort of um, accountability and responsibility on the community. I mean, um, you know, two hundred shillings is about three bucks. I can't do a cataract surgery for three bucks. The lens is more than that, but it it tells that community. Um, you have a part in this. And one of the most exciting things I saw one day was when one of the patients said to another patient, um, he said, oh, I haven't got my money. I haven't got money to pay for it. And the story is we never did turn anyone away that really didn't have anything, but sometimes people said they didn't have anything just because they want a free ride. But one of the other patients said, well, I'm getting mine. This isn't expensive. I'm going to do yours as well. And that was neat. That was really neat. Um, special, special thing to see. So um, responsibility on the. This is one of my staff. He uh, asked the guy to go bring a goat because the community said he's really wealthy. He has hundreds and hundreds of goats, and he was he was just not wanting to pay anything. And so my staff member told him just go bring a goat then. <laughs> so we had goat for lunch. Large number of people are blind from cataract, and we say, why? Here's some of the reasons. Um, I've asked this question many times. I'll go into a community. We'll see 100 people that need cataract surgery. Only 50 of them come. Or uh, 50 of them come, and then maybe way down the road, after they've spent a lot more time blind, maybe another 10 or 20 of them will come. And here's some of the reasons. Um, availability. Now, that wasn't our problem. We, we were there. You were more likely to get a surgery quickly at Tenrick Hospital than you probably are here. Wait time was less. Um, bad outcomes. Um, the, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is good training. Um, if people... I spent a long time training, and um, I've trained surgeons in Kenya, and it's got to be done right. You haven't got much room for error inside the eye, and and it is a delicate organ, 
and it can go bad. And I remember one clinic I went to, I saw 30 patients uh, that were blind in that one clinic out of about 40, which is a very, very high percentage. 20 of them, 30 of them, sorry, 30 were blind. Um, they'd been op- uh, 20 of them had been operated somewhere else by someone that didn't know what they were doing. I reoperated 10, and 10 I could do nothing about. They were going to be blind from the surgery. That's not good. What do you think that community went back and told their families? You know, you're just going to try surgery. They're going to make you worse than what you are. The little vision you've got is going to be gone. And so bad outcomes are absolutely one of our biggest problems to getting people to come for surgery. Cost, um, in many places the cost is above where people can reach it. So it's something you got to constantly remember. These are people that no longer have an income. They're a burden on their family. Um, they, they can't get around. Transport's a problem, so somebody has to stop their work to come with them. And so cost is a big issue. It's not just the cost of the surgery. It's transport, it's loss of a job, it's taking a kid out of school, it's whatever. And so there's a lot more to it than that. Distance is a problem. An escort. Um, I talked to one patient, a family member. I said, how come you didn't bring your, um, your mother sooner? They said, well, every time we take them on the public transport, they can't see. And so they get out of the back of the Matatu, which are these little pickup trucks. They get out of the back, and they squat and, and, and uh, you know, go to the bathroom right there at the side of the Matatu because they can't see anybody around. They're not worried about it. And they said, I'm so embarrassed. And so she didn't want to bring her mother because of embarrassment that it was causing. And that's, a, that's actually a more common problem than you would realize. Um, and I realized that was happening. Fear is another big one. Wh- is it going to hurt? What's going to happen? And one of the neatest things, I see somebody, um, I go into an area, we start doing surgery, hardly anybody's there. Three people come. I, I do one surgery, and once that bandage comes off and that person is seen, they come in droves because they want to make sure somebody's seen. All right? Um, so there's a fear, huge fear factor, and the buzz goes around. Did it hurt? Did you know what happened? Did they? And I hear all kinds of stories. He took the eye out, put it on the table, fixed it, put it back in. No, no. Uh, but I hear all of those, and this kind of comical the way those go around. All right. So here's the son bringing his old, old father. So his time is tied up. He can't make an income because he's taking care of getting his father around. Um, so the surgery that we're doing is called uh, manual small incision cataract surgery. And it's, um, it's a simple surgery. Um, it's, it's one step behind what we do here. And the interesting thing is in the last just few months, uh, it's resurfaced and it's coming back into vogue here in the States, this surgery. And I've been doing it for 10 years. <laughs> so this, so I, I talked to the people at the university uh, where, I'm, where I'm teaching at UK and uh, uh, tell them about this and they say, well, how do you do that with no sutures? I mean, we make a four millimeter incision, but you're talking about an eight millimeter incision and no sutures? And I, they've asked me all kinds of questions. I said, well, yeah, a couple thousand and no iris come out, maybe one iris in <laughs> 2,000 cases. So good results. It's quick. It's about the same time as the phaco surgeries that they do. Low cost. And there's, when the cataracts are very dense, it's very hard to do it with the, with the FACO machines that the surgeons here use. They can't get, cut through it. It's thick and it's hard and it's a dense nucleus. Um, these are made for the doctor I can't see to drive anymore, cataracts. 
But we're talking about people who can't see their hand in front of their face. Okay? And so very thick lenses. So M6 is a good, uh, that's the nickname for it, M6. Um, and it can be done in rural areas, little equipment. Um, so here we are set up in, that's inside that building you saw on the first slide. Um, it was a school. And there we are setting up. There's the little microscope. Um, sometimes it's a challenge to get the place somehow sterile. We always said it was somehow sterile. Um, Going, I took a couple of students up to um, Wamba, the little place I told you, and kind of going over the instruments with them. That little set of instruments right there is about eight, eight or $900 on a discount. Um, so it's not cheap, but uh, it's a whole lot cheaper than a fifty dollars or $100,000 FACO machine. Um, so, and you can't carry that. I can carry this, and I can take the little microscope. This is a scan optics microscope, um, but... Uh, most of them are in the range of 10,000. Many of them are uh, 15 and upwards. And so I'm working on trying to get the cost down like this. And I have one that's set up just about like this that's under 2,000. And I'm trying to get the weight down so the stand is uh, kind of a uh, weight issue. Some of the areas I go into have to go by a helicopter and you can't take very much. I'm allowed 100 kilos beyond my staff. You know, their immediate weight. That's our water, our food, our instruments, our sterilizing, our microscope. 100 kilos, 200 pounds isn't very much when you start looking at all that, especially if you're going to a dry area and have, want to drink a liter a day for everybody. So, so there's the scope that I've been working on and uh, using it there. I've done about 50 cases with it. There's a couple of my students I took up there. This was in a church. <coughs> Talking about spiritual care is very cute. The the surgeon, I mean, the um, pastor came to me and said, we asked if we could use the church to use the biggest, cleanest place we could find to operate in. He said, well, I don't, I don't know, is that sacrilegious to do surgery in the church? And uh, I said, well, I don't know. I said, Jesus healed people on Sunday, on the Sabbath. And so I said, I think it's okay. He said, oh, yeah, I think so. That's good. All right. And he let us work all week in his church, which was wonderful. And you can see the pulpit in the background. Um, by the way, the IV was hung from the rafter. Okay. The neat thing about this picture and I wanted to show you, so this is the microscope I'm developing. Next to me operating was this man, who I started out as a patient attendant. He's now doing eye surgery. Uh, what a thrill to get to operate alongside him. But... He's using his ice microscope that's upwards of $15,000. Okay. Um, he's spoiled on that. Okay. We should have started him on this one. Okay. Because now, if he ever leaves Tenwick Hospital, he's not going to want to operate. I trained three surgeons before I left Kenya. None of them are operating today simply because they don't have a microscope and they don't have instruments. They're working for the government. The government said we can't afford it. That's tragic. These are people with good hands, do nice surgery, and they're losing their skills. They've lost their skills. And I find that really tragic. And so instruments, and so I'm in a process right now working with an organization called Help Me See. Um, and our thrust is to, number one, train surgeons, because we need more surgeons for the rural area. So we're looking at training non-ophthalmologists, um, probably starting with doctors, and then going to mid-levels uh, to train them in, in the cataract surgery. And what we're doing, um, I'm not doing. Somebody smart's doing it. Um, they're developing a simulator 
that we can train people on. And um, I had the opportunity to look at the prototype and try it out. And uh, I played around with it a bit, uh, amazingly realistic. And I looked in, there's only half a microscope there. I look in, look underneath, there's nothing. And I look in this, and here's an eye there, and uh, the patient, and I move the eye, and I can do the surgery. Uh, it's just amazing. It was absolutely amazing. All, of course, virtual image off the computer hooked up. Had an instrument there that was just a rod with some gizmos on it, some little pulleys and, and uh, bearings and things. But when you looked inside, it had an instrument on the end, again virtual, and where you moved it. And if you pushed against the eye, it gave you tactile back. You could feel it. It was so close. They asked me, "How? What's the pressure in the eye?" I touched it. I said, 20 millimeters of mercury." They said, "You're right on. That's exactly what we designed it for." And amazing. It's really amazing. So that's what's in the works. Hoping next summer that that's going to be out. Uh, very expensive project, but it's got good funding behind it. And our goal is to put five of these in five countries, uh, one in five different countries, one each in five different countries, train 100 surgeons a year on it. Um, and uh, so that's 500 a year. Those guys are going to need microscopes. We're not going to be able to afford 15,000 per person. So we're looking at trying to get this cost down on the microscopes um, and, and develop that. Now, the other thing about this is, so once they get the, with the simulator, right now when I train somebody to do eye surgery, I have to wait until they mess the eye up and I get a complication to tell them how to fix it, right? You don't want that to happen, right? <laughs> you really don't want complications. So you try and help them do it with, and avoid as many complications for two reasons. One, it's bad for the patient. Two, if they have a complication, I've got to fix it. <laughs> and I don't like doing that. I like to go into an eye that I've, <laughs> I've started nicely. I don't want to fix somebody else's problem. And so on the simulator, we'll be able to actually reproduce the complications. And so they have to fix it on the simulator so they can learn how to deal with the complications before they ever touch a patient. Once we get them proficient on the simulator, we can send them to the patient and have them work with the patient. Great and then we'll start working and put them with a surgeon. So the exciting new things, we need a lot of prayer for that. I'll tell you why. Because I think the ophthalmic community is going to resist it. I think governments are going to have some things to say. Um, uh, and because you're doing something for the poor, they're not going to be able to get a cut out of it. And so I think that's um, we're going to hit some resistance along the way, but I really believe it's the right thing to do. So that's something neat. Here's a guy with cataracts. My time is just about gone. I need to give you some time for questions. So here's a cataract. Uh, very good. If any of you don't like looking at surgery, the next five slides are <laughs> cataract surgery. So if you want to shut your eyes, you're welcome to. Okay, so that's what a dense lens looks like. Um, there's my incision. It's a frown incision. We call it down here. Okay. Um, and we make a tunnel. It tunnels into the eye, and that's why the, the wound shuts uh, when we come back out. Um, and so we go in, tunnel into the eye. I cut it with a little needle, the anterior capsule, so I can get the lens nucleus out. There's the nucleus coming out. My incision, I float it down the, the, the out of the incision with water, just uh, injecting water in there. Um, there's now it's clear, okay, but there's no lens in it. So this little line here is what's left of the capsule. I make an envelope, and then I can slide my lens in it, 
and then I tear the top of the envelope out after I got my lens in. And there's the lens in, and you can see where I've torn the capsule out. So all that happens at three millimeter space, it looks nice and big here. It's a little bit different when you're doing it. Okay, and this is the result. And next morning, you take that bandage off. Just great. Here's a lady walked for five days through the bush, being led by her son to get cataract surgery, and this was her reaction. She was a very stoic lady, but she just she went bananas. She was so thrilled. The anticipation, I love the lady behind. Is that really going to be me? Am I really going to see like that? It's great. So here's my microscope, packed up with sponge. I've taken it to Haiti and Kenya now. Um, some things about mobile surgery, just very quickly. Mobile is a good thing, but just remember it is time-consuming. It takes a lot of logistics. If you're three hours from the nearest shop, uh, you maybe can't sterilize your instruments because you forgot your matches. Um, and you have all this equipment ready to go. You forgot a box of matches. I'm not too good at rubbing two sticks together. So you can be in a mess. Um, operable cataracts. I like uh, when we do them, uh, do the clinics, um, if a clinic drops below about 10% of the, of the patients we see that are operable cataract, you probably either had a bad experience in that community or you've, you've taken care of the cataracts in that community. And so after a while, you start seeing that drop off. So I try and back off a community like that um, because I'm just treating itchy eyes, the stuff I can't do, you know, that's going to return. And, and it's not really making a lot of difference to avoidable blindness. So um, numbers in the clinic decline. And then um, it is time-consuming and expensive. And by far the better way, if possible, is to transport patients in to where the surgeon is. Otherwise, the surgeon spends many hours on the road where he could be doing surgery. And so that's... Uh, some areas we went into, we had to go by chopper because uh, it was just too far. This one that we're just coming into, it's at the base of those hills. We were flying into there. It, took me, it would take me 12 hours from Tenwick to drive to. Um, we were about, oh, it was about three or four by the chopper. So that was huge. So this is a van we, or a truck we were able to get before, we, before I left Kenya transport patients in or to go to the communities with our with our eye clinic and just a real godsend. Okay. Sort of surgery in the bush, a little bit to be desired on sterile technique, but you know what? My infection rate is no worse than the infection rate at University of Kentucky, <laughs> which is amazing. I've got to say one thing about that. I've got to give the glory to God on that one because I've worked in some pretty amazing places. Um, Trachoma has been a huge um, cause of blindness. It no longer is 6 million people uh, with it. It's no longer 7 million blind. It's hugely decreased. Um, uh, but we still have a lot of blind people that are dealing with the lashes turned in. So there's need for surgery. This is the assessment. I'm not going to really go through this. But you need to think about how you're going to assess your community. What are the problems that are the biggest in your community? And this is one just by looking at the environment and the kind of people that are there and what's going on, is this a place that's likely to have trachoma? Is it a place that's likely to have vitamin A deficiency and the kids be there? So you look for those kinds of things. With the kids, if you're seeing, uh, if you're seeing 2% of the kids, or 20% of the kids with active trachoma, you've got a problem. If you're seeing um, one out of 100 adults with the lashes turned in, you've got a problem. So these are quick ways of assessing your community without doing a huge population-based study. 
Glaucoma is a horrible disease. This was one of the youngest patients I'd seen, completely blind in both eyes, at about, uh, she wasn't much over 20. She was between 20 and 30 years old. A newborn conjunctivitis, this is from uh, uh, gonorrhea. Um, the mother has gonorrhea. Three days after birth, you see this kind of picture. Blinding problem. Um, kids are a big thing. Measles is a huge cause of blindness because uh, either they put traditional medicine in or something. Um, so measles is kind of in the middle. Um, you get a, a, an inflammation of the cornea, keratitis. Uh, you can get vitamin A deficiency. You can get scarring from herpes simplex virus that is opportunistic when the um, when um, when they have the measles, and then you can get harmful eye practices. So these are all things that cause childhood blindness, uh, along with malabsorption and malnutrition. So those are all. This is a. I wish I had time to explain this whole thing to you. It's actually very fascinating, but that's the basics of it. Vitamin A deficiency. Um, <coughs> If you see one or two children with a melting cornea for, from vitamin A deficiency in your hospital in a year, you've got a vitamin A deficiency problem that's underlying, that's just smoldering along, and that's something you need to know. Um, so what do you do about it? Breastfeeding, dark green leafy vegetables and, and yellow vegetables, and vitamin A supplementation, and they're doing it with the feeding there. Okay. Childhood blindness. A small percentage of the blind, but huge impact because the child's going to be blind for 60 or 70 years. So it's a huge impact on the community. 50% of them die within one to two years. There's still 1.4 million that are blind. 85% um, of them live in the developing world. Okay. Spiritual care. Um, I talked about the pastor. Um, it's a wonderful time. Um, patients, they don't feel sick, so... It's a great time for a pastor to talk to them, and they're they're happy about being there. Um, the it's a time they they get that bandage off, and they are just elated, and it's a huge opportunity for the gospel. And one of the things I like to take the time to do is let the patients tell what this has meant for them. And so you've got all these people who are just seeing again, and you let them talk to each other. And some of the testimonies that come out of that are just amazing. And I've just been thrilled sometimes to sit back and watch God work in that situation. We had a chaplain that was working in our community, huge help, um, just a beautiful um, help to our community. And many, many came to the Lord through that ministry. This was a little girl that became blind from vitamin A deficiency. I'll never forget her mother coming in weeping, telling me about her blind child. And I had to tell her there was nothing I could do. This is that same child a few years later. I actually was able to do something. I went in, I took a big chunk of virus out, and I was able to let her look over the top of her scar. And she's in school there today, and I stopped by to have a good Ken Kenyan cup of tea with her. <laughs> so, but, uh, and so she's going to school today. Um, very neat story. When I was up in March, in, sorry, in February, up in Wamba, this was my favorite patient, the little crippled fellow. I'll never forget putting him on the table. He was totally dejected. I mean, he was just depressed, hugely depressed. And I put him up on the table, and I sort of straightened out his little crippled leg and bunched him up where he was somehow comfortable and did the cataract surgery. And uh, I, I've rarely seen so many sad patients. He was crippled. He was blind. His son was having to lead him around. That's his son, by the way, just on the edge of the picture, who was a, um, a Samburu warrior. 
There he is with his dad. There they are in the waiting for the next morning. There he is with his patch. And that was the result. <laughs> and I'm sorry the picture's a little about a bit out of focus, but I, I had to put that one in. It's great. <laughs> Here's another one. This man hadn't seen his hand for a number of years. And that was he was, he was checking out his fingers and it was amazing to see it. You saw that lady already. Think about this one. Thanks a lot for listening. You've been a great crowd to talk to. Um, and 